Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The phrase coffee table book has received a bad reputation in some quarters, but an MTSU alumnus has put together a book that you probably won't be able to leave on the coffee table. Nashville Sound, an illustrated timeline by Dr. Don Cusick, the Curb Professor of Music Industry History at Belmont University, is jam-packed with tidbits of information about the history of the music industry in Nashville, not just the country music industry, beautifully illustrated with photos that make the stories jump off the page. Nashville Music after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. Dr. Heather Brown, director of the School of Concrete and Construction Management, was inducted into the Tennessee Concrete Association Lifetime Hall of Fame February 7th in Franklin. The honoree, a native of Fort Campbell and Clarksville, Tennessee, hugged about 25 alums individually as they walked onto the stage. The concrete and construction programs have produced 1,350 graduates who are spread across the country. 1,000 of those are in concrete, and Brown said that she has taught all but 17 of them through the years. There are 375 concrete students in the program now. And MTSU students and their faculty mentors who are preparing for the 13th annual MTSU Scholars Week 2019 must submit their abstract proposals by noon Tuesday, February 26th. Each online abstract submission will include a project title and 150 to 300 word summary of the research project. Only submissions with undergraduate and graduate students as first authors will be eligible for judging and prizes. Scholars Week will be held March 18th through the 22nd. Events will include department and college activities in discipline-specific venues for a presentation of graduate, undergraduate, and faculty scholarship. Proposals for each college event have separate submission processes and deadlines. Planned activities will include talks, readings, performances, posters, and multimedia presentations. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Don, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks. Uh, great to be here. This book is really inclusive. It includes African-American music, rock music, radio, promotion, television, gospel. What was your thought process like of when you were deciding what to put in? Well, I, I really thought the title should be Nashville Sounds because... <laughs> the because baseball team would sue you, yeah, right? Because it covers uh, so many sounds. Uh well, I was approached by a publisher about, and, and he did uh, books kind of localized. He, he's from St. Louis. Uh, the company was in St. Louis, so they do St. Louis football or Missouri <laughs> football or things like that. Mm -hmm. And so he said he thought it would be good for Nashville music. Well, they mostly did pretty small books. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started uh, working on this and started turning some stuff in, and they realized that this is, you know, it's a lot more than they thought. Mm -hmm. So uh, my idea was just to, to cover it all because so many people don't know those roots, those Nashville roots of gospel, black gospel, pop, uh, and, of course, National Center for Con Contemporary Christian Music. So, As you were researching this book, what was the most surprising bit of information you came across? That in 1945... There was not a single recording studio or record company in Nashville. Wow. There was, there was uh, radio stations had some studios. 
But in 1960, 15 uh, years later, it was well known as Music City USA. What is responsible for that? Is it the Grand Ole Opry, or is there more to it than that? Well, there's more to it than that. There's, uh, Opry is very important, uh, but um, it really, because uh, it starts with the, the, the Fist Jubilee singers in term, musically, and then we have the Grand Ole Opry, and then we have R&B coming out of L, uh, WLAC. Um, but uh, what really was the turning point was Ernest Tubb wanted to record in Nashville. And, uh, you know, to back up a little bit, there was an independent label that had started called Bullet Records. Uh, they were humming along. A studio had been built by three uh, WSM engineers. So there's a good studio here that was getting a lot of business. And Ernest Tubb insisted on recording in Nashville. He was such a big artist that they... They figured out how to do that. Of course, the Opry was here. There's other major artists that, could, uh, that DECA could record. And, and that was the turning point. After that, it opened the uh, gates for, uh, for uh, uh, recordings from major labels to be made in Nashville. You mentioned WLAC and its contribution to playing what was then called race music. Mm -hmm. I had the privilege of interviewing some of those DJs. Oh, jo really? John R., John R. Yeah. Hoss Allen, Hugh Baby Jarrett, yeah. and uh, the one and only Ernie's Record Mart with the 499 special. Yes. Uh, that was as important as WSM's 50,000 watt powerhouse as far as I'm concerned. Oh, absolutely, because he, uh, Ernie Young and, of course, Randy... Um, uh, what's Randy's last name? Uh, that started uh, uh, his competitor. Yeah, uh, started uh, Randy's Record Shop and, and Dot Records, um, but they sponsored those programs and uh, uh, on on WLAC they put together these packages of records. They sold a ton of records. Black Gospel was the heaviest seller. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, Ernie's Record Mart. I mean, they were and Randy's uh, was. Uh, were shipping out records all over the country, really all over the world. Some of the Rolling Stones, uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards ended up with some, or Mick Jagger did anyway, ended up with some of those records coming out of Nashville. I think it also helped to, like, you know, broaden people's sensibilities about what was good music because there were some white folks listening to that so-called race music, mm -hmm. even though Mommy and Daddy didn't want them mm -hmm. to. Oh, there's many stories of... Uh, people telling, you know, saying they were laying in the bed with a transistor radio or the head covered up or the radio on real low. And everybody thought they were asleep and they were supposed to be asleep, but they were tuned in to WLAC. I came to the conclusion when I read the book that about 85 percent of the entries in this book merit a book of their own totally <laughs> on that subject. Did you yeah. feel that way? You know, that book, on one hand, it took a year to write. On the other hand, it took over 40 years to write. So I had written books on Elvis, on Johnny Cash, um, Merle Haggard. I'd written a history of country music. I'd written, you know, just a ton of things that, that just sort of all went into that book. Mm -hmm. But there's more that should be done. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the Record. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, 
go to mtsunews.com. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. Don Cusick, the Kerr Professor of Music, Industry History at Belmont University, and an MTSU alumnus, former mm-hmm. MTSU faculty, as a matter of fact, and the author of Nashville Sound and Illustrated Timeline. Some of these places in that are in the book don't exist anymore. I can remember as a kid going into the Hermitage Hotel mm-hmm. with my parents and seeing a DJ broadcasting live in mm-hmm. a glass-enclosed studio that housed this big band-formatted radio station. And they pumped the audio from the big band station through speakers that were in each and every room of the hotel right over the door yeah. on the inside uh, why did some physical manifestations of our music history survive, like the Ernest Hub Record Shop and uh-huh. Tootsie's Orchid Lounge, and why did some of them fade away? Well, of course, the Hermitage Hotel is still here. Yeah, but, but the, uh, the big band station isn't in there anymore. Yeah. Nashville, uh, you know, the history finally caught up with it fairly recently, and they realized that they were having a national and international impact right out of Nashville. But, you know, at, at that time, point in time it's an old building let's tear it down get a new building Uh, or developers would come along and say which is they're doing really now a lot is gee if we tear this building down and build condos we can make a lot more money Uh, so that's you know it was it's the uh, it's capitalism uh, uh, at work that for a lot of it and a lot of it was the buildings were old Mm. Uh, and of course, you know, you know, once internet comes in and these buildings have to be wired some of these old houses weren't weren't quite as good, you know, as good as they should be. But, uh, yeah, it's a real shame. The Tulane Hotel, where that very first uh, studio was, mm-hmm. torn down many years ago. Uh, lots of, we, I mean, we've had a block just, you know, blocks just leveled. What's there now? Do you know? What did they put up in that, on that site where the Tulane Hotel used to be? It's, uh, it, it's the former library. I don't know what it is now. It's a junky building. Mm. They were, you know, storing stuff in there. And there's a there's a parking lot. And so that parking lot and that old library that was the Tulane Hotel. You mentioned that a lot of recordings were made in Nashville that people don't necessarily know were made in mm-hmm. Nashville. I think most people know about Bob Dylan's Nashville skyline, mm-hmm. but talk about some of the others. Bob Dylan recorded all or part of five albums in Nashville. The fifth album, it's a little misleading. He left uh, CBS and they were kind of irked at him. So they put together this uh, uh, CD to release. And uh, one of those songs had been cut in Nashville. It it wasn't ever supposed to be released. But anyway, um, he came down here for Blonde on Blonde. That, uh, and he recorded that here. That was a double album too. Yeah, double album. Uh, recorded that here, and that just opened the doors to the rock artists coming to Nashville. Now, after that, he did um, John Wesley Harding, very acoustic album. He did Nashville Skyline. He did uh, Self-Portrait. A lot of those songs from Self-Portrait are cut in Nashville. Um, and then uh, uh, that album called Dylan, and mm-hmm. those, those were the five. 
But yeah, he opened the doors. He made it legitimate for a rock act to come to Nashville because it wasn't cool. Nashville was not cool with the rock crowd. Didn't you mention Harvest by Neil Young? Yes. Which was a huge album for him. The hit Heart of Gold, an old man, came mm-hmm. from that album. Yeah, uh, and Heart of Gold, his biggest single hit, was cut in Nashville. Did Nashville get any competition from the uh, recording studios in Muscle Shoals when they opened up? Not really, although a lot of the musicians uh, from Muscle Shoals ended up moving to Nashville because Nashville was a union town. Mm -hmm. You could make a living playing music, and they were always trying to, you know, cut short, (laughs) cut short. You know, it's cheaper to do. Actually, there was a studio in Murfreesboro that had a lot of recordings. Chip Young owned a studio uh, down here. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, I can help. The, Be- the Billy Swan hit was cut down here. Mm-hmm. And Mickey Newberry, I think, uh, recorded some down here. Now, Linda Ronstadt recorded here, right, in, in Nashville? Uh, in Nashville, yeah, out at uh, Woodland. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did the Silk Purse album. And on that album were musicians who later became the Eagles. What is the... Uh, attraction or what was the attraction to the rock artist after they quote unquote discovered Nashville was it the facilities was it the session players was it the ambiance what was it well, it was a chance to get away and get out of LA the craziness there and you know just mm-hmm. concentrate on playing but the other thing was the musicians were just so good and so fast uh, you know when you're in a band um, and you need to learn a song, you just play it over. You know, that's what the Beatles did. They played the song over and over and over again until they got it. Well, these guys in Nashville, you know, they, you'd run the demo down, they'd chart it out, run it down once, maybe run it down twice to get it right, and then, and then it's a take. You, get, you know, these guys coming from L.A., you know, it's taking all day to get a track, and here they're doing four tracks in three hours. So there's a lot of appeal there. You don't have to spend much on studio time then. That's exactly right. And that was expensive. Uh, how about Nashville as a music production, uh, a television production capital? Mm-hmm. I remember reading once, I don't know if it's still true, but at one time, at least, Nashville was number three in the country in television production behind L.A. and New York. Mm-hmm. Was that after in the 70s? Yeah, I would think it would be in the 70s, yeah. Johnny Cash's show was on TV. Hee Haw was on TV. Yeah. Well, the real growth on Nashville television came in the 80s with uh, TNN, the Nashville Network, and then CMT, which was kind of a step below there. Uh, but they had a whole bunch of radio, I mean, a television shows beginning in the 70s. Johnny Cash, Hee Haw, and Glenn Campbell, and the CMA Award Show all came on the air in 1969, televised. Glenn Campbell wasn't here. But it was it was a country music uh, it was a country music show and that added to it and they began seeing that there was a value in you know TV in Nashville there was plenty of content you know the 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 tragedy of it is is that got bought up by big companies and they just sort of threw it aside they didn't know what they had corporatized it all yeah that basically it and tried to uh, you know go for the quick buck and splinter it off and you know sell bits and pieces. That was done with uh, Viacom and CBS. Mm-hmm. But they're the ones who are making a, a mint in syndication off of Hee Haw and some of these other yeah. shows, right? Yeah. Although after a certain number of times, you don't get any money. Well, now you do, the, the company does, but the actors don't. 
Right. After it's shown something like seven times. So they keep showing I Love Lucy and uh, Andy Griffith, and those guys aren't making any more money. Yeah. Time for another break. We'll be back. This is MTSU on the record. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference at MTSU for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. EYH also provides the girls with fun, hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. For more information, visit mtsunews.com. We're talking about Nashville Sound, an illustrated timeline by Dr. Don Cusick, who is the Kerr Professor of Music Industry History at Belmont University. He's also an MTSU alumnus. When did you graduate from MTSU? Well, I came to get my master's, and I think I entered in 78, if I'm not mistaken, and I, gra- and I got the master's in 82. And then I was hired by the RIM department, and uh, while here, while teaching here, I had to stay at the instructor level, and I could uh, stay and get my doctorate, and I got my doctorate in 88. Mm-hmm. Uh, I taught here from 82 to 94, left in 94. And what did you teach? I taught, well, I actually created some, co- well, I taught the, the survey uh, introduction course. I taught marketing of, you know, of the music uh, recording industry. And then I created a couple of courses. I created um, a history of the recording industry course that's still being taught here. Mm-hmm. Created international music business course, which is still being taught here. Um, so I taught, taught a wide variety, pretty much everything except production or publishing. What was it like back then by comparison to now? Was the recording industry department in its infancy at the time that you were uh, part of the faculty, or had it found its legs? Well, when I joined, it was still pretty much in its infancy, but it found its legs pretty quick. It was a very popular program, and we had something like 1,500 majors, or maybe it was 1,500 majors in mass comm. Um, MTS grew faster than really um, <laughs> the administrators wanted it to or, or mm-hmm. the Board of Regents wanted it to. It just overpowered University of Tennessee in terms of numbers, mm-hmm. um, which is bigger than, than UT now. Uh, it just, it, you know, MTSU is in the right place at the right time, um, drawing from that Middle Tennessee market. So once it started growing, it just exploded. And what do you think of it now with all the newer buildings on campus and everything. The appearance of it has changed a great deal from the time that you were a student here or even a faculty member. I was lost when I got here. (laughs) I mean, I'm wandering around. I don't remember seeing all these buildings. In fact, I was lost in Murfreesboro because I was going going to get off on Broad Street and uh, it was like an exit ramp and I'm looking for a stoplight. Missed that and had to wander all around there. So this place has grown mm-hmm. incredibly. And yeah, the buildings uh, have just exploded. I understand. I was, uh, the Mass Comm building opened in 92, and I was here, mm-hmm. had an office in there. 
Uh, and that's one of the oldest buildings in that side of campus. So That's true. <laughs> 18 and uh, 8, it's 26, 26 years that building standing there. And that was brand new or pretty much brand new when I left. You could have gone anywhere for your degree. Why here? Well, the main reason it was convenient. Uh, I didn't have to take a year off or semester off. had a wife and family. Uh, and uh, the real major reason was Charles Wolfe. Uh, who legendary figure here? I don't know if people Head still remember the, uh, him or not. Tennessee but, Folklore Society. Yes, wrote a book or two on country music himself. Yes, he was my major professor. Uh, I really clicked with him. He was doing, you know, he's one of the leading experts in country music, and that's what I was interested in. And so um, that was that was a main reason: uh, location and Charles Wolfe. There is getting back to the book a lot of information in here that industry insiders might know, but maybe casual fans might mm-hmm. not know. Uh, the publishing houses, the producers, it's a mm-hmm. blend of industry-specific knowledge and the things the music-buying public might know already, just mm-hmm. from having read liner notes on mm-hmm. LPs and that sort of thing. Uh, how did you decide what of the industry-specific info would have been good for a book like this? Well, the music business is the music, the business, and the technology all rolled together. Mm -hmm. And so you need to understand the music side. You need to understand the technical side and the business side. And so that's kind of been my guiding. Well, when I teach class, when when I write, is trying to see how the technology and the business supports the music, how the music drives along uh, the technology and the the, uh, business side. And so it's just you know, trying to show, I, I didn't really sit down and go make a list and go this, mm-hmm. that, and the other, but uh, uh, just knowing that this music, like the 90s, exploded because of SoundScan, a barcode technology. That was a major factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the digital coming off of the cassette, that's a major factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, distribution, you don't sell records unless you get them in the store. <laughs> right. And, uh, and radio, you know, the promotion, the radio promotion. It just all, it, to me, it's all rolled together. What about back in the day when Bing Crosby uh, brought Ampex mm-hmm. over to the United States so that he could uh, transcribe his radio programs, get the heck out of the studio, and play 18 holes of golf? Yes, that's what he wanted to do, <laughs> and go fishing. That was a major revolution in the recording industry. Oh, it was huge. And ABC, uh, which was the low man on the totem pole in the networks, this was radio at the time, um, were the only ones that would give him a shot. He was the big dog in the music industry. NBC and CBS said, nope, we don't want the, you know, we don't want the shows taped. We mm-hmm. want them live because that's where they'd always been. Yeah. Huge breakthrough. And, of course, with Les Paul, that becomes part of the studio technology. Used to be you recorded direct to disc. And you made a mistake. You had to stop, get another disc, and start all over again. And tape has evolved that you could you know, mix it. You could overdub. You could cut out stuff. I think you had more than a little help because the combination of photos and font and uh, <laughs> the the layout, it's it's just beautiful. It's eye-catching. You, you really can't put it down because uh, there's so much variety. There's not a lot of sameness to this. Mm-hmm. You can't go more than a few pages without seeing something about non-country music, gospel, mm-hmm. blues, bluegrass, classical you've yeah. got a little bit in there about the skirmer horn yeah everything 
Well, uh, Olivia Beaudry, who works at the Center for Popular Music here, really should have her name on the front cover of the book, too, because she uh, handled the pictures and got those licensed and found them. Uh, and uh, to tell you the truth, um, that book was finished in 2017. It was uh, held up. The, the, they had a warehouse burned down, oh, this, that, and the other. And so they put it off for a year to come out in 2018. I was in London on the final edits, and they're, you know, emailing me stuff. It's all in black and white. Yeah. I, you know, it was in black and white, and I'm having to proof the pages and whatnot. It wasn't until I opened the box of books that were sent to me that I realized how terrific it was. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, wow. And my wife's going, oh, wow, this is really cool. So it, it was, uh, it really wasn't until I saw it that I realized, and of course, the Reedy people, uh, they were used to doing those kinds of things, uh, those layouts. So they certainly did a, a great job. Is it more fun to do a book like it, like this than it is to write for a peer-reviewed journal or to write a textbook? Well, um, I don't know if – you know what's rewarding is when you write stuff that people read mm-hmm. and that want to have. And, and so that's much – very rewarding because of that – the layout and, and, and the topic. Um, writing – you know, I – I was born to be a writer, so uh, I, I enjoy writing whatever it is. Uh, I like writing for the general public more than I'm, – I'm really not a scholar. I'm a writer, and it's a difference. But you are a scholar. Well, you teach yeah, at a university. People, people, yeah, but there's a certain type of scholarly writing, you know, with all the footnotes and all of that. And I've done it, and I do it, but uh, I enjoy the – uh, the journalism, a little the journalism side, a little more than the scholarly side. It's not quite as heavy as the two-volume encyclopedia of the First Amendment, but it is a hernia waiting to happen if you yes. don't pick it up properly. Yeah, well, like it, it would come in these boxes of eight each, and uh, they were quite heavy when I would unload those from the car. From the car. Oy. But you will love it when you get it. Uh, Nashville Sound, an illustrated timeline by Don Cusick, available at all the usual locations, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere, everywhere, right? Yes, thank you. And and it'll be uh, on the MTSU bookstore. Yes, as well it should be with our Center for Popular Music right here. Dr. Don Cusick, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for uh, inviting me in. We'll be right back. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There is no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Civil War National Heritage Area is managed by MTSU Center for Historic Preservation. A partnership unit of the National Park Service, the Heritage Area tells the whole story of America's greatest challenge, offering assistance with Civil War and Reconstruction Era programs. Our projects include historic driving tours, museum exhibits, and nominations to the National Register of Historic Places. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. 
Randy Weiler has the middle moment. MTSU School of Concrete and Construction Management Director Heather Brown recently was inducted with two others into the Tennessee Concrete Association Lifetime Hall of Fame. I don't build roads, I build people, she told the lunchtime audience in Franklin, Tennessee, where the award was presented. Brown talks about the honor. I always feel a part of the concrete industry, but this award validated all the hard work in creating and building a workforce. I do get a lot of satisfaction following my alumni, seeing and hearing about all their successes. Um, They really, I think, are my greatest achievements. Um, Personally, I've been connected to the Tennessee Concrete Association since graduate school, uh, over 20 years. So to be recognized alongside two industry giants, that was very rewarding. Uh, It's also very motivating since receiving the award, I have been thinking, wow, I have, I have 20 years left. Uh, what's my next legacy? And I'm looking forward to that challenge. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.